again. And it's really good to be back with you. Uh, that was 21 days apart, at least for me. It's been 21 days since I've been in this room with you. Um, the last time I gathered with you was on Sunday, February 9th, and here we are in the month of March. It's crazy. That's why they call that basketball tournament March Madness, because it's just madness that we are already at this point in the year. And then the Sunday after, the Okinawa Marathon prevented us from gathering here. That was the 16th. And then last Sunday, Linnea and I were returning. Um, we were still on a plane, I think, at this point. We were returning from a trip that we'd taken to uh, Australia. It was a work trip. And uh, we were going down there to participate in the Acts 29 Australia-New Zealand gathering. And just um, so you know, like that is, that is the primary family that we are a part of. It's a global family of diverse church planting churches. And since the network is so young and small here in Japan, uh, the network in Australia, New Zealand, which is older, much more robust, lots of churches, they very kindly agreed to adopt us. And as part of their relationship with us, they actually paid for all the Acts 29 church planting couples in Japan to fly down to Australia and participate in their gathering. And they put us up in a hotel and they were just very kind to us. So that's where we were. And I'm glad it was last weekend and not now, just with the way travel is getting like, who knows if we would have been able to go and who knows if we would have been able to come back, which wouldn't have, I mean, prolonged stay in Australia would have been okay, but our kids were here. They weren't, they weren't with us. I don't think Jeff Hill is in the room, but he preached for uh, me in my absence last Sunday. Uh, he, was, he did a, a phenomenal job pointing us to Jesus, and so I just want to thank him publicly. This morning, we conclude our Seven Letters series, and throughout this series, we've been asking and answering this question, who are we? We've been putting this picture up on the screen, but the picture is really just a, a picture of the shot of, our, of these stenciled words on the wall in the back that we walk by every Sunday at least two times. We are a family of missionary servants learning to live everyday life with gospel power and purpose. We are simply ordinary people uh, no all-star Christians in this room, ordinary people learning to live with gospel intentionality, sent as disciples who make disciples. We as a family belong to Jesus, so we are his, and as his family, he gives us our identity. We don't find it somewhere else. We don't create it for ourselves. It's not really up for us to decide. Jesus gives us our identity, and Jesus defines what it means to be a healthy church, a healthy family. And so we've learned a lot about what it, what it looks like and what it means to be a healthy family by Jesus' definition um, in this seven-letter series, and we've learned a lot about our identity. So let's just review real quick where we've been. Uh, each of these will be up on the screen for you, but these were kind of the big ideas each week. In the opening of the series in chapter one, we learned that as Jesus' family of servant missionaries, we find our safety in our sovereign sending king alone, not in safe cities or places or in the absence of the coronavirus, right? Like we're not dependent upon those things for our confidence or our safety. Our safety is in Jesus alone. Our confidence is in Christ. And then in the letter to Ephesus, we saw that Jesus commends the church, which works hard at right doctrine. Right doctrine matters. And patient endurance, that matters. But in the absence of love, that good church is as good as dead. And then in the letter to Smyrna, we saw Jesus commending his family when facing extreme pressure to conform to the culture, they fearlessly and faithfully live out their gospel identity and purpose. 
to Pergamum, Jesus wrote and commended his family for their faithful public witness. But when he sees in them a dangerous hypocrisy, he corrects their unfaithful personal ways. And he does that for us as well. And then to Thyatira, Jesus commended this church for growing in good works. But he warns of judgment for those in the family who continue choosing idols over Jesus. And then to Sardis, they had a good reputation in the city, but Jesus saw past their reputation to what is real, and he calls dead churches like the one in Sardis back to life, warning them of judgment, but offering, us, offering mercy to those who hear. And then last week, you guys looked at the letter to Philadelphia, where Jesus reminded his family that our perseverance is rooted in his character and his promises and his strength, not in our own strength or our own determination. And then you noticed at the conclusion of each letter were these words, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, tipping us off that all of these letters, though they were written to specific churches in specific cities nearly 2,000 years ago, they are just as much for us today as they were 2,000 years ago. All of these statements are for us. But here's what we see as we wrap up the series and as we approach this final letter. Here's the big idea for the day, kind of in four short propositional statements. The first one is this. Every church is messy and imperfect, right? Every one of those churches were messy and imperfect. They were commended. Some of them were commended for certain qualities, for sure. Uh, But none of them expressed those qualities perfectly, and most of them were corrected for areas in their life where they, they really had some messiness and imperfection going on. So every church is messy and imperfect. But what we're going to see today is that sometimes our mess and our imperfection turn into seasons of being really messed up. Sometimes our mess and our imperfection turns into seasons of being really messed up. But what we'll see today, Jesus still loves really messed up churches with a fiercely loyal love. Guys, Jesus still loves his church even when they are really messed up. He loves us with a a fiercely loyal love. And in that love, what Jesus does is this. He reproves and he disciplines messed up churches for their good. Now, let's just change, let's just tweak a word in there so that we understand this is for us as a family, but for all of us sitting in here, this is true for you as an individual as well. So let's say it this way. Every Christian is messy and imperfect. Every follower of Jesus is messy and imperfect. We all fall short. We all fail. We all falter. We all have weak faith. Every one of us, no exceptions. And guys, sometimes our mess and our imperfection turn into seasons, even long seasons of being really messed up, every one of us. But even in those seasons of being really messed up, Jesus still loves really messed up Christians with a fiercely loyal, never stopping, never running out love. And in that love, Jesus, if he loves you, he is going to reprove you. In gentleness, he is going to correct you. He is going to chase you down for your good. And that's what we see in this final letter. It's written to the church in Laodicea. And if you have your Bible, you can find it in Revelation chapter 3. It begins in verse 14 and it ends in verse 22. I'll read that out loud and you can follow along. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write... 
the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. So I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we need to hear from you this morning. We need to see you. I pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears. Allow us to receive your word. Help us to see you clearly and help us to see ourselves and life clearly um, as you see it and as you see us. Father, Pray that you would humble our hearts this morning so that every one of us would be able to agree with with you when you say of us that every one of us are messy and imperfect. And I pray that you would humble our hearts enough so that we would be able to acknowledge that we very well may be in a season where we're just really messed up, but that we would find hope in the reality that you love us perfectly with a loyal, a fiercely loyal love, even in those seasons of being messed up. And that we would look for your voice, we would listen to your voice, and we would go running back to you, Father, as a good father. And that in running back, our souls would find the restoration and the healing that they so desperately need as we turn from our idols, from our substitute gods, as we turn from ourselves and our own perception of strength, and we turn to you, our creator and our redeemer. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes we like to save the best for last. Who likes to save the best for last? I like to save the best for last. That's why dessert comes after dinner. It's the best. You save it for last. Um, We like to say, most of us, some of you don't have personalities to save the best for last. The best goes first, right? But most of us do like to save the best for last. And that's what we have here in Laodicea. I mean, they're not the best. They're the worst of the seven. If we were going to rank these churches in terms of how jacked up they are, like this is probably number one right here. Um, Their mess and imperfection had blown up into a season of just being really messed up, really messed up. How bad? You saw it, right? Or you heard it in verse 16. What did Jesus say to them? What did he say? I am going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, sometimes our English language is just a, really bad, um, just a really bad language to receive some of the original thought and to give it all the vivid imagery that it's supposed to have. But spit is a really soft translation of what Jesus was actually saying. It's unfortunate. He was saying to them, I am going to projectile vomit you out of my mouth. Now, we didn't say that as kids. We said Ralph or barf, or fill in the blank. So whatever word your family used, like that's what Jesus is saying. Basically what he's saying is you've triggered my gag reflex. That's how bad it was. 
This family is so messed up that they had triggered Jesus' gag reflex. They had a repulsive culture in the life of their church family. It was really bad. I mean, we kind of chuckle about that, but it's tragic. It's the kind of church that you'll hear about in a blog or on a podcast where there has been abusive leadership or there has been a lack of gospel just culture, so there's no grace. There's no love. It's just a bunch of people going through these religious motions, but it's empty. It's hollow at best, at worst. It's really the, the anti-gospel, the anti-Christ, and it's a bunch of religious people showing no grace and no mercy, quite honestly, because they have not received grace or mercy from Jesus, and they are tragic, tragic stories. Laodicea is a tragic story. They're messed up. But while Laodicea is the worst, Jesus still saved the best for last. How do you ask? Well, Laodicea stands as the best example of Jesus undying, never giving up, and loyal love for his family. You're like, John, I don't, where do you see that? Like Jesus just said he was going to vomit them out of his mouth. Where do you see this? Like, why would he, where's this love thing? Well, look in verse 19. It says, those whom I love, I reprove. And this letter is Jesus reproving his church, it's, it's, it's Jesus correcting them. So this is Jesus signaling to them, I love you. He loves them. Jesus still loves really messed up churches with a fiercely loyal love. Jesus loves the ones who are triggering his gag reflex. He still loves them. Some of us really, really need to learn that because we've been raised in a Christianity that teaches you that Jesus loves you when you do good, or Jesus loves you on the day that you've been a good Christian, or the Father's most pleased with you when you've just nailed it in being like Jesus. Guys, those are all lies. There's nothing you can do to make the Father love you anymore. The Son earned your place in the family for you. And when you, by faith, are in Christ, the Father says that the same perfect love with which I love my Son, that's the love that I gave to you, and it's secure. There's nothing you can do that's going to increase my love for you, and there's nothing you can do that's going to take my love away from you. Jesus loves the ones who trigger his gag reflex. He still loves us. And so Jesus did save the best for last because they stand as the best and clearest example of Jesus' loyal love for his people. And that is really good news for us this morning. Because at some point this week, no matter how good your week, you triggered Jesus' gag reflex like I did and you did. I could, it would not do you any good, but I could, I could list off five examples from the last two days where I know in disobeying Jesus or even just in, in what I was thinking or feeling that my own heart was repulsive to him, but he loves me with a fiercely loyal love. And so Jesus introduces himself in this letter, just like he did in every other letter, according to the unique needs of this church. And so he introduces himself as the amen, the faithful and the true, true witness. Um, any of you grow up in a culture where amen was used all the time? Like Texans or I don't know, where does that happen now? It wasn't really my culture in the Northeast, but you know what I'm talking about. Every sentence ends with an amen or, right, that. So what does the word amen mean? What does that mean? Why do we, like, in those cultures, why do we use it so much? What are we saying when we say amen? And some, you agree? Yeah, you agree. What else? Say again. Thank you, Jesus. Let it be so. Yeah, let it be so. I agree. Thank you, Jesus. Let it be so. This is true. This is right. Um, this is trustworthy, and this is binding. Th those ideas are all wrapped up in this word, amen. So Jesus as the amen is the true one. Jesus as the amen is the 
perfectly right one. So his words are always trustworthy is what he's saying. And what Jesus says is binding over us. It's, he's always trustworthy. He always says the right thing. And um, he has authority over us. What he's saying says to us is binding. So those ideas are wrapped up in the word amen. And they are reinforced here in the introduction with the words the amen, the faithful, and the true witness. He's kind of repeating what he's already said, just with different words. And so what do we need to see in that? I think this morning what we need to see is this. We are surrounded by voices speaking into our lives every day. You have a sea of voices that speak into and attempt to speak over your life. You yourself probably bring five or six of those voices to bear. Your counselors told you that, right? Like you, you, you got multiple things going on in your heart and your mind that your, your heart's speaking in, your mind's speaking in. And um, over the course of a day, you may say five or six different things to yourself. And then you're surrounded by people and culture and um, media that are just constantly speaking into your life. It's a crowd of voices. It's a crowd of conflicting and completing voices. But in the noise... One pure voice cuts through, and this voice is always true, it is always right, it is always trustworthy, always trustworthy, it is always binding, and it is the only voice that actually carries true authority over you. Do you know your own voice does not carry authority over you? Do you know that? Like, this is a really liberating thought or reality. Jesus' voice alone is the the singular voice that has authority over you. As I was thinking about this week, that this week, I was reminded about the scene in the emperor's new clothes. Did you read that story growing up? Do we still do that in school? All right. I don't know. Probably not. It's probably not an acceptable story anymore because the king is naked through a lot of the story. Like, there's just... So this king is naked and he's walking through the, cl- the crowd displaying his, his new clothes, right? And he's surrounded by voices which said to him, What? Look at you. You're splendid. Your clothes are amazing. You're beautifully dressed. They fit you perfectly. Look at his train. All these words affirming, speaking lies. And one voice, one voice cuts through the crowd. It's the voice of a little child. And the little child says what any little child would say. Well, my kids wouldn't say it this way. Uh, They'd be like jumping up like, yo, dad. The little child just says, but he hasn't got anything on. He's naked, right? Guys, Jesus is the one voice which cuts through the crowd. His motives are pure and right. He tells you the truth. While everybody else is affirming you falsely, Jesus' voice just with grace and humility says, look, dude, like you're naked. You're, you, you got nothing on. And that's exactly, did you see it? This is actually exactly what he tells the church in Laodicea. Did you see it? It's like, Yo, you're naked. That's exactly what he said. He said, you need something to cover the shame of your nakedness. You you don't have any clothes on right now. But Jesus is better than the boy in the crowd who pointed out the king's nakedness because beyond telling the truth in his innocent, boyish kind of way, the boy was powerless to help the king. But Jesus is not powerless to help you. In fact, he's also introduced here as the beginning of creation, reminding us That with nothing but a word, Jesus created and gave you life. Jesus spoke the world into existence, and then he speaks us into existence. And he holds us together by the word of his power. And through the power of his word, Jesus creates and he recreates. Through the power of his word, Jesus heals, Jesus restores, Jesus redeems, Jesus 
rescues and he brings order out of the chaos. He gives life where there is only death. And this is good news for us because we're all really messed up and imperfect. Uh, a week or so ago, Emma and I had the chance to sit down with a local artist. Her name is Brittany Lampman, and I totally forgot. I was going to give you guys a picture. Um, she makes amazing Okinawan art, and the reason Emma and I connected with her to talk to her was we love the... Never mind, I won't give you that whole backstory. One of her pieces of art is she, she, she paints the vending machines that you can find all over Okinawa. So she got this poster of the best vending machines. It's awesome. And then she gave Emma, uh, she makes these little, you know, those Lego keychains. It's kind of like a, it's a vending machine keychain the size of a Lego brick, but they're all unique. They're painted to look like different vending machines around the island. So we were talking to her and we were just asking her about, she's always been an artist. She grew up wanting to be an artist. And so we were asking her like for advice for kids who want to be artists when they grow up and stuff. And just, she was great. She was great to talk to. And then I think Emma asked her, hey, like, what do you do when you've started making something and you just realize it's really broken and messed up and it's, it's just the painting's a mess and it's not working out? Like you throw it out, right? And you just get a clean canvas and start over. And she's like, no, I never do that. Every piece of art is alive. Like she had some really unique and beautiful um, ideas on art. And so she said, every piece of art has its own identity and it's alive. And it would be a shame to just discard it. I take it and I recreate it and I make something beautiful out of the mess. I take the broken and I turn it into something new and whole and beautiful. But underneath that beauty is the story of the ugliness from which it came. And I'm like, man, that's crazy. That's like gospel redemption right there. That's exactly what the Father does with us through Jesus. And that's why Jesus is so much better than the little boy in that story because Jesus has the power to recreate. Guys, we make a mess of our canvas. It's such a mess. And Jesus brings beauty out of that ashes. He brings beauty out of that brokenness. He's powerful to recreate, redeem, and restore in life. Guys, that's our hope this morning. Not that you can dig yourself out of the hole that you're in. Not that you can fix the broken relationship that you're in. But that Jesus, through a word, recreates and redeems and restores that which is broken. And that's good news for the church in Laodicea. They need recreation and redemption. It's good news for every imperfect and messy church. And that's good news for every church which finds itself in a season of being really messed up. And this is our hope. We don't, as a, as a follower of Jesus, we don't hope in our ability to clothe ourselves. We rest in Jesus' ability and willingness to clothe us, to cover our shame with mercy and redemption. So how messed up was the church in Laodicea, you ask? That's a good question. They were messed up. I mean, it was really, really bad there. Jesus, he doesn't commend them for anything. Do you notice that? Most of the churches got a commendation. They didn't get one. And then Jesus compares them to the drinking water in the city, which if you don't know anything about Laodicea, doesn't really mean much. But here's just a little recap of their water situation. Laodicea was a great city. If Laodicea was a choice on your dream sheet, like we're almost in PCS season. Let me just let you down softly though, by the way. Okay, can I do that? Coronavirus is going to delay all of your departures. And the people who are supposed to come in behind you won't be here on time anyway. So you get to stay here in Okinawa even longer than you were anticipating. Okay, so let's just like everybody give a hug for that uh, in just a minute. But anyway, if you could leave and if... If the, your service branch, yeah, that's funny, right? If the service branch actually honored your choices of those like 15 dreams that you put down, 
you would list this city as number one. Like you would fight each other for the billets that are available in the city. This city was an amazing place. It was wealthy. It just had everything you could want. That's Laodicea. There was one thing they didn't have, and that was their own fresh water source. There was no good fresh water source in this city. None. So what they had to do was they had to pipe in water from over six miles away. And of course, back then, I think we have a picture. Um, this is them piping water in from six miles away. It's just a crude kind of stone and clay thing. Six miles long, that's just baking in the sunshine, sunshine all day long. It's filled with mineral deposits and dirt and sediment and lots of other things from all the animals that are around. And bacteria is just like, it's a petri dish in there from the sunlight in that water. It is dirty. And by the time it gets to the city, it's not cold. It's not hot. It's just this gross middle, middle in between, and it's just filled with dirt. So basically, it's like drinking water at Camp Lejeune. Or, um, hey, I was teaching a class on Camp Shields this week, and uh, I finished my, what Owen calls my spicy water, my carbonated water, and I filled it in the sink and just it was brown. I don't know like what you guys who live there are doing, but like the water was, was brown. So like this is Laodicea. It's like Camp Shields, Camp Lejeune. Have you ever like tasted pure, just straight up untreated sulfur water? I remember the first time like on this road trip, I think it was a youth group thing or something. And we were staying in a host home and it was a sulfur water home, but I'd never been around it before. So all I could smell like in the shower was the smell of rotten eggs, but I had no idea. It was like, I just thought it was their essential oil soap or something that they were using. Like I didn't know, but it was sulfur water. So when I went to take my first big drink, my gag reflex immediately kicked in and I just spit it out. Like I was, I was rude. I was at their breakfast table, but that's what I did. So if you were a visitor to Laodicea and you're taking a drink of water expecting to be refreshed, you, you would spit your water out on the ground. So guys, when Jesus is, is explaining this to them in this letter, like this, this, is what he's ta- this is how repulsive they were. Now, meanwhile, just six miles to the north, the city of Heropolis was known for its natural hot springs, just six miles away. They had the perfect hot water. They had the, the onsens were in Heropolis. That's where they were. Their water was known regionally for its medicinal benefit. So the hot water from Heropolis was healing. So that's what Jesus is saying when, man, I wish you were hot. Like, at, at least you would, you, would have a, you would have a heal, not at least. If you were hot water like Heropolis, you, would, you as a church would be a place of healing for people, but you're not hot. And then 11 miles to the west, Colossae was known for their naturally occurring and absolutely pure ice-cold drinking water. Uh, think, this is what I grew up, so I'm sorry, but the Rocky Mountain commercials for Coors with Sam Elliott's voice in the background, that, like just pure, crisp, ice-cold water, that was just 11 miles down the road in Colossae. They were known regionally for being the place where the water was the most refreshing and the most life-giving. People would travel to these two cities for their water. That's what the church is supposed to be. Like we would have that living water and people would travel to us to experience that. And Jesus says, you're not hot and that's tragic. You're not cold and that's tragic. It's not an either or. It's not like hot is good and cold is bad. Um, They're both good in their own right. And so Jesus is saying, my family is meant to be healing to the soul like an onsen is for the body. My family is meant to be refreshing, life-giving to the soul like pure ice-cold mountain spring water. But you, Laodicea, you are like the warm, dirty water in your city's nasty pipes. You are not healing. You are not refreshing. In fact, the culture of your family is repulsive 
It triggers my gag reflex and it triggers the gag reflex of anybody looking to be healed or refreshed. Guys, that's really sad. That's really sad. And we don't know specifically what they were doing or what they were not doing, which made the culture of the family this repulsive to Jesus. The letter doesn't tell us. We don't know what they were doing or what they were not doing that was keeping them from being a life-giving family, but we actually have something more insightful. Rather than telling us the three or four failures, Jesus actually gives us a glimpse into the heart. And that's good for us because if all we could see were the failures on the surface, that's probably what we would focus on. But failures on the surface are always connected to a root issue in the heart. And so that's where Jesus takes us because maybe our own failures are expressed differently than Laodicea. But the chances are we share a lot of the same heart problems that they did. So here's what he says of their heart in verse 17. Their hearts were saying of themselves, he says, say, I am rich. You say of yourself, I have prospered. You say, I need nothing. Notice the emphasis in there. I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Guys, this church was a comfortable church. They were proud. They were strikingly self-sufficient. Their financial prosperity and their comfortable existence, their successful careers, and all their accomplishments had served to turn their hearts away from the giver of these good gifts. They still went to church. They had public worship gatherings. They did what we're doing right now. They sat in a in, in, a, in a room, and they would sing songs, and they would listen to a reading from Scripture, and they would listen to somebody teach or explain and preach from the Scripture. So they would do what we're doing. They would do all these things. And here's what's sobering about this. While they went to church, and while they listened to these sermons, and while they sang these songs, they would leave the door. They would press into another week of self-sufficiency. And they were just like us. They were well off, like we're well off. They've prospered like we have prospered. Um, They really didn't need anything, or, or so they had been led to believe. And for us, in our own cultural expressions, it's very easy to believe that I don't really need anything. That's what they believed. And this is what's sobering. They didn't realize that the opposite was true until Jesus' voice cut through the crowd like the little boy at the king's parade. And Jesus said to them, family, you don't even realize this, but you are, and here's what he says, you're wretched, you're pitiable, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. You're naked. You're that piece of canvas, that messed up art that Brittany was talking about that, definitely, that desperately needs to be recreated. Jesus said, you think you have everything, but you actually have nothing. You are, but you're self-deceived. Like You can't even see this unless I tell you. And then, you know, in verse 18, we, we see what they should do. What should they do in this, in this mess, in this brokenness? What should we do? Jesus tells us in verse 18, he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What Jesus is doing here is going after their primary strengths where they were so self-confident because Laodicea was known as the regional banking center And they thought they were rich, but they're actually poor. Laodicea also manufactured top-of-the-line clothing. It was was the only item that you go to the Marine Family Thrift Shop on Foster to look for. And if you don't see it, you leave because you're too cool to buy anything else that's there. Like, it was that line. It was, they actually had a locally sourced wool, um, and they manufactured high-end clothes. And so everybody in Laodicea was dressed well. 
And so Jesus is saying to them, man, you, you think you're well-dressed. Look at you. You show up and you, just, you look great, but you're naked. Like your, your soul, you, there's just, you're, you're not clothed. Your, your, your guilt is exposed. Your shame is exposed. And then they even had a local medical school in Laodicea, and the school produced a world-renowned eye ointment. So everybody in Laodicea had great eyesight, or so they thought. And Jesus is saying to them, you, you think you see clearly, but... Like you're, you're blind to what matters most in life. You're blind. And guys, that's the gift that Jesus gives us through the gospel. He opens our eyes so that we can see these things in our lives that we thought were our strengths, that we thought we had mastered, have actually mastered us. The things that we think are our strengths are the very things that keep us from exercising dependence on the God who created us. The things that we think are our strengths and our gifts are the very things that Keep us from thinking or believing that we too need rescue and restoration and redemption. And Jesus in his mercy opens our eyes and he says to them and he says to us, I alone have what you need. Listen to my voice, run to me, buy my gold, buy my clothes and buy my eye ointment. Now, obviously Jesus is not talking about literal gold or literal clothes or literal eye ointment. He's offering us the good news of the gospel and in the gospel, Our poverty is turned into riches and our nakedness is turned into clothing and our blindness is turned into sight. And Jesus says, only when you forsake what you think are your strengths and you run to me, will you truly be rich. Only when, only then will your guilt and shame be covered. And only then will you have eyes to see the world as it truly is and eyes to see yourself as I see you as you truly are. And the good news of this, even though Jesus says to come and buy these things from me, They are available to us at no cost to ourselves. Jesus sells these things to us without cost. These gifts are not free though, but knowing that we could not afford to buy them because we are bankrupt in our rebellion, Jesus paid for these gifts with his life. And since he has paid for these gifts with his life, since the cost has been paid in full, he offers these gifts to poor sinners at no cost. You can be rich, not financially. You can have sight spiritually. You can see, you can be clothed. Your, the shame that you carry around can be covered and met in the grace of Jesus. But guys, we don't stand in judgment over the church in Laodicea. We, the gospel tells us we are just like them. We are naturally blind to our own idolatry. You know how when you buy a car, all of a sudden where you never saw it before, like you see that model and that color everywhere, Our hearts actually do the opposite thing. Like in our rebellion, it's like in our rebellion, we don't even see our own idols. Like they're manifested all around us, but we don't see them that way. And only when the gospel is given to us, only then are our eyes open and we see the idols in our heart and the idols all around us. We buy all the wrong things. We pursue all the wrong things. We don't see, Jesus sees And he calls us to listen to his voice so that we can cut through the sea of voices in the crowd around us. We think we are rich because we have stuff. But the gospel tells us that the stuff actually has us. We are rich when we are freed from the power and the allurement of money and stuff and we have gained Christ. Until we have gained Christ, you can have everything in this world and you are are dirt poor. We think we have prospered because we have met with success, but we are poor in spirit unless we have received what Jesus has done to prosper on our behalf. 
We think we need nothing, but unless our hearts are increasingly content simply because we are finding everything we need for life in the Spirit of Christ, we are of all people most impoverished. We have nothing apart from the work of the Spirit in our lives. We have no good thing unless it's been given to us from the hand of Jesus. Guys, the gospel tells us through this letter to Laodicea that we, like them, are a mess. But the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus loves us in that mess. And he says to us this morning, John, John, son, I am reproving you because I love you. John, I am going to discipline you because I love you. Because you are my son, I'm not going to let you take this sin to the grave, nor will I let this sin take you to the grave. I will expose it for your good so you can be healed. I'm going to discipline you because I love you. And he calls us to be compelled by his love for us to repent, to turn from our self-sufficiency this morning and to run to Jesus. Look what he says in verse 19. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. See, growing up, we always thought that was a Bible verse for people who don't yet know Jesus, right? That's what we thought, like Jesus is knocking on the door and people need to open it up. But in this letter, what we see is, little did we know, this is a, this is a, this is a verse. This is, these are words that Jesus is giving to people who are already in his family. This is something that Jesus says to those who are already in the family. Jesus speaks this reminder to our souls every day through his spirit. John, you need one thing. And you're surrounded by a sea of voices that tell you you need this and you need that. Your heart's not content, that will make it content. You're not happy, this person will make you happy. This spouse has not satisfied you, that person will make a better spouse. Not this, that, and just on and on and on and on. All these voices. And Jesus cuts through the noise of the crowd and says, John, you need one thing, you need me. You need time with me. I am your greatest need. And if you listen to my voice, if you open that door, your soul will be satisfied. That's what Jesus means when he says, I will come in and sit down with you and I will eat a meal with you. He's saying your soul will be satisfied in my presence. That rest you can't find, that hope that you think is dead, your joy which you think is gone forever, your peace, contentment, security, satisfaction, all those things which you feel elude you, You find all of that in me, Jesus says, and you find it in me alone. All of those things will continue to elude you as long as you are searching for them in any other person or place outside of Jesus. And so the question before us this morning, family, is will we listen to his voice? Will you open your door to Jesus? And if you will, Jesus says that he will satisfy your hunger and he will satisfy your thirsty soul. Another interesting uh, historical tidbit about Laodicea in in AD 60, uh, the city was rocked and absolutely leveled by an earthquake. Like this magnificent, rich city was leveled to the ground, dust and ashes. The city was destroyed. And they could have and they should have asked asked Rome for help in rebuilding, right? They should have gone to the federal government and said, we're destroyed, we need help. But you know what? They didn't. They were too proud to ask for help, and so they attempted a rebuild on their own. And our problem is, guys, that we are just like Laodicea. For some of us this morning, our city has already been rocked by an earthquake. Like, it's already in ashes. Like, you're sitting here, and you're like, yeah, that's me. Like, my life is rubble right now. My relationship is rubble. 
For the rest of you, your life is maybe not, maybe you've not experienced that earthquake yet, but your life is full of early warnings. You feel some of the early tremors of a coming earthquake. And those tremors are signaling to you that apart from Christ, your life is going to be absolutely rocked. And the gospel is telling us that the tremors and the quake when it comes should compel us to run to Jesus but they don't. Our hearts are that upside down and that twisted and that self-sufficient and that we try that much autonomy and independence from Jesus. Our hearts are as proud as the people of Laodicea. We're like, no, I'll rebuild it myself. Or we're like, that's not a tremor. That's not me. It's you. Meanwhile, every tremor, those, the tremors aren't the problem. The tremors are signals that you have serious problems going on in your soul. They're pointing you back, right? Like Ron talked about the pornography class that's going on for the guys. And guys, pornography is not the problem. It's not the problem. The problem lies deep within the soul. And within the soul, whatever that heart problem is, uh, rather than running to Christ, that's, we are, we're pursuing whatever it is we're looking for, satisfaction, control, gratification, in porn. So take porn out of the equation and add in whatever substitute God it might be. That's not the problem. A conflict in your relationship is not the problem. There is a heart issue somewhere. There's a tremor that's pointing us all the way back deep down into our soul. But we're like the people in Laodicea. We're like the emperor in the emperor's new clothes. So we already, we already revisited that story and we talked about what the little boy said. He said, but man, he hasn't got anything on. And the father says, man, did you ever hear such innocent prattle? So the story goes like, don't mind my boy. He doesn't know what he's talking about, right? And, and then one, whis- one person whispered to another what the child had said. And he, he really doesn't have anything on. And the whisper just kind of rippled through the crowd until it wasn't a ripple anymore. And all of a sudden the whole town cried out what? The emperor, the emperor has no clothes. But do you know how the last line of the story goes? Do you remember? It goes like this. The emperor shivered for he suspected they were right. But he thought to himself, this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his noblemen held high the train that wasn't there at all. You know what our problem is? It's not that the voice of the boy hasn't cut through the crowd. Jesus' voice has cut through the crowd. The problem is in our hearts, we're just like the emperor in that story. And we say, man, this procession's got to go on. I've got to continue the illusion. I've got to continue this other, people can't see what's really happening more proudly than ever, broken on the inside, but projecting this image on the outside. And meanwhile, the train is not there at all. Guys, Jesus is calling us this morning to stop walking so proudly. Jesus is calling us this morning to acknowledge that the train just really is not there at all. Apart from Jesus, I'm just naked and my shame is exposed. Jesus is calling you to stop pretending. He's calling you to stop going through the motions. He's calling you to humble yourself. He's calling you to run back to him. In love and mercy, Jesus is telling you the truth about yourself this morning, that you are naked and exposed, and some of you are just deeply wounded and desperately in need of healing. And Jesus says to you, I will clothe you. I will cover your shame. I will give you mercy. I will restore. I will recreate the canvas that is just dying and dead. I will give you that mercy. Last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday. Uh, did any of you grow up in a, in a background where Ash Wednesday was a really big thing or Lent was a really big thing? Many of us did not. 
Uh, last, last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, and it marked the beginning of Lent, which is a season spanning 40 days, not counting Sundays, leading us right up to Easter. Lent is one of the oldest observations on the calendar. Uh, the earliest known mentions come from about 130, so a really long time ago. Back then, it seems to have only been uh, just two or three days long or 40 hours long, but like everything else, we have to make it bigger and better every year or it's not for real, right? It seems like from what we gather in history that the original intent of Lent was for new Christians who were preparing themselves for baptism on Easter to be firmly rooted in their new identity in Jesus. So that would be the focus of the entire Lenten season, focusing on their family identity in the gospel, their identity as servants, and their identity as as missionaries. But it was such a good thing that those practices in Lent soon encompassed the entire church family and not just those preparing for baptism. And then some of you know the last week of Lent is known as Holy Week. It begins with Palm Sunday. That's where we remember Jesus' final entry into Jerusalem. And then how's Thursday called? Because I never pronounce this correctly. Monday. Whatever. M-A-U-N-D-Y. You can tell what background I come from. In Latin, which is not my background, um, but Google will tell you this. That means commandment. What's the new commandment in John 13, 34? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the love that was being demonstrated as Jesus went to the cross for us. Good Friday, we remember Jesus' crucifixion. Holy Saturday, we remember Jesus' death. And Resurrection Sunday is the culmination. It's our celebration as Jesus' people where we remember our hope is not in ourselves. It's in a risen king who is, what did we read in Revelation this morning? He's ruler over all the kings on the earth, right? There's our hope. And so the original purpose in Lent was this, 40 days which bring profit to our soul. It was a season for making sure that I am listening to that one voice which cuts through the crowd. It's a season for making sure that I am daily spending time with Jesus, daily listening to his voice, daily taking his counsel, and daily running to him for what I need. It's a season where we give extra attention to examining our hearts, to preparing our hearts for Christ, to repenting of our idols. And we do this through self-denial. We fast from good things so we can focus on the better thing, Jesus himself. And in that increased hunger, we use that hunger to remind us, okay, my physical hunger reminds me that I am a spiritually hungry being, and I normally satisfy that hunger on lesser things other than Jesus, but I'm going to be focused rather to allow that physical hunger to drive me back to Christ and remind me that I need him more than I need anything else. I need him more than I need a meal. In fact, historically, it was common to eat just one meal per day through all of Lent. It would be near the evening time, and it would not have included meat, fish, or any animal product. So there you go, vegans and vegetarians. Like That's where it all, all got started. But sadly, this beautiful gospel purpose was hijacked over time. And what was, what was a good thing for the church became a very dangerous thing. It became a very dangerous thing through two ideas. One is penance and one is merit. And in that idea of penance, Lent became the season where we, we thought, okay, I need to inflict punishment on myself for wrongdoing. Um, 
And oftentimes those penance would be assigned by a priest or a pastor. Like you would actually come and confess and he would say, okay, for 40 days, because you've been a bad Christian, you need to punish yourself in these ways. And through your punishments, you would say to the father, I'm really sorry, dad. Penance. The other idea is merit, where we came to believe that if we would give up stuff, we could earn more of God's favor. Kind of like a little kid saying, look at me, dad. I'm a really good son right now. Like, do you love me more now? And so these kind of evil twin sisters came in and polluted the practice of Lent where we, we would punish ourselves. And that punishment is actually a disbelieving of the good news of the, the gospel. We stop believing that Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf was sufficient and we feel we need to do something in addition to what Jesus already did to, to earn forgiveness from the Father. That's penance and it's not biblical. And then merit on the other side. We disbelieve that Jesus did everything for us to be fully accepted by the Father. And so I've got to do something more just to show my daddy like how much I love him or how good of a kid I am. But Jesus already did that perfectly on our behalf and we're perfectly accepted. And merit is anti-gospel as well. But in the gospel, the original purpose of Lent can be redeemed. And we're reminded that we're not made for Lent. I don't exist for Lent. Um, it's made for us. And so what that means is, as a follower of Jesus, you are free to participate if you want to. If, it's, if it serves you well, you are free to choose not to participate if it would be a stumbling block for you. For example, if you came from a background where this idea of penance and merit was just so ground into you, where participating in Lent now would make you feel like you're revisiting those anti-gospel days, probably better for you that you don't participate. So we're not slaves to a season, but this season does have great potential to serve us well. It's an opportunity to purposefully and with great intentionality recenter our lives on the gospel of Jesus. We fast from good gifts, allowing our hunger to drive us to the giver of these gifts. So if you're like me, I'm encouraging you to do what you may have never done before. Participate in the season of Lent. If you're unlike me and you have grown up in expressions of Lent that were really not anchored in the gospel, maybe the best thing that you can do for yourself this year is not participate at all and just find your freedom in the gospel, understanding that Jesus has done everything on your behalf to earn your forgiveness and to earn your place in the family and to believe that the Father loves you perfectly. For those of you who would like to participate, we're only five days in, so there are 35 days remaining to Easter, and I want to invite you to participate. We sent an email a week ago, and we'll send it out again later today and tomorrow, and all the email is, it's just a guide. You're free to do with it as you will. They're recommended fast for our community. They're not binding over you. Uh, if you would like to participate with them, great. If you would like to choose different fasts for yourselves, that's great too, but we'll send that out again this afternoon. The purpose of Lent, though, from our perspective is this. It's a season to ensure that every other voice in the crowd is secondary to the voice of Jesus and that we focused intently and purposely for this season to hone in on Jesus' voice and to submit to him. And this letter closes with an amazing promise. It says, the one who conquers, the one who listens to my voice and repents, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Guys, this is Jesus letting us know that there is full inclusion in the family for us. Are you a messed up, messy, imperfect Christian? You betcha. 
Is there a category of second-class Christians who will find themselves more distant from the Father when Jesus is done with us and brings us home? Absolutely not. Is there a place called purgatory that you need to go to finish working out all of your rebel tendencies and to finish kind of purifying yourself so you can be ready for the Father? Absolutely not. Jesus does all of that work, and when he is done, you will sit down with him, and you will be right next to the Father in the family circle. And Jesus is more committed to you getting there than you are getting than you are committed to getting yourself there. So don't underestimate what Jesus is doing in your life through the tremors and through the earthquakes. He loves you. He speaks truth to you. He is committed to bringing you all the way home to the Father where you will sit down with him and your soul will know perfect rest. So guys, this morning, every Christian is messy and imperfect. Sometimes our mess and imperfection turns into seasons of being really messed up, but here's our hope. Jesus still loves really messed up Christians with a fiercely loyal love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for loving us. We thank you for pursuing us. We thank you for doing everything to, to accomplish our redemption in Jesus. Father, I want to pray this morning for those souls who are just, they're, they're uneasy because of the tremors that have been rocking their foundation, or they're just beyond that. They're just wrecked because they have... Uh, They have experienced an earthquake relationally or physically or spiritually. Father, I pray that by your grace and through your spirit, you would speak true gospel words into every heart this morning, that you would breathe hope and breathe life into our souls through the reminder that you have a fiercely loyal, undying, never giving up, never quitting, never stopping love for your kids. And Father, may this love drive us back to you, not guilt, not shame, but your love. And as we run back to you and we see that your arms are open and we see that you have already been pursuing us and you in fact have been running towards us in Jesus, that our hearts this week would be filled with a life and a joy that perhaps they've not known for a season, that we would find those things in Christ and in Christ alone. And we pray this in his name. Amen.